Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Love like no other, a song of Solomon. We're going to go to chapters 5 and hopefully get to 5 and 6 today. Uh, Amazing and very unique book of the Song of Solomon. I read a true story about 15 couples in Tampa, Florida that were married on a roller coaster, literally. So the guys wore tuxedos, the, the girls wore wedding dresses, they were all mic'd up and, um, and had earpieces in, headsets, so that while they were going on the roller coaster, they could hear the, the pastor telling them <laughs> what to say and that they gave their vows as they were going on the roller coaster. It, they were legally married on a roller coaster. So, <clears throat> now that, that right there is a very strange way to start a marriage. But actually, it's a pretty good analogy <laughs> to, to marriage, isn't it? Uh, there are the highs of romance and passion and love, but there are also the lows of conflict and tension. Um, and it was no different with this couple in the Song of Solomon. Up till now, we have seen all passion, all of the highs, really, uh, not really very many lows. But today we're going to see a low point in their relationship. But to their credit, we'll also see how they resolve the conflict and restore uh, that relationship again. And by the way, and I think anybody who's married here understands this, especially if you've been married for a while, that's what we have to keep doing as married people. We have to keep forgiving one another. We just keep forgiving one another. We resolve anything that might come between us and just keep doing it over and over and over and over again. Now we're going to see how that plays out in these two chapters now. Time has passed since the wedding, okay? Last week we talked about the wedding and the wedding night even, and now years have passed, probably now several years, quite a few years maybe even into their marriage, and there's some tension brewing in the bedroom. So this is a story of marital conflict and restoration, a story of marital conflict and restoration. The first thing we're going to see is offense. We're going to see an offense. And in chapter 5, verse 2, the woman is speaking here, and here's what she says. I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, for my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. Now this appears to be a dream sequence. She says, I sleep, but my heart waketh. Uh, That also maybe could mean that she's in that halfway place between sleep and being awake. We don't exactly know. We can't be 100% sure if this is really about to happen, what what the events that come next really happened really in her life, or if it's just something that she's imagining and dreaming. But what we are going to see is something that every couple can identify with. This dream or experience, whatever it is, represents a very common occurrence, really, in marriage. 
And uh, that, by the way, is just a reminder that humans have not changed in 3,000 years, okay? We're all still the same, and the things that you go through as a married couple, almost uh, for sure, married couples have been going through since the beginning. But here's what happens. He is standing outside, and he's knocking on the door, it says. He's asking her to open the door, and he's standing out in the cold, dark night. There's dew on him. His hair is wet with dew. Maybe he worked all day, and he came home later than he promised he was going to come home. He's now standing late at the door. Um, and, And maybe, or maybe that's not exactly what happened. Maybe he's just wants to be intimate with her, and uh, he's begging for her to open the door so he can be intimate with her. Now, it was common for couples back then uh, to have separate bedrooms, even separate buildings uh, that they were in, and especially kings and queens. But we certainly know one thing. We see his sweet talking in the verse. Uh, Look at what he says. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, which makes it seem like he's done something that she's not very pleased with. (laughs) Please open the door. Please, lover, darling, sweetie pie, please open the door. It's pretty clear what we have here is an offended spouse. She's locked him out. Now, we don't know the offense, but it's not looking good for him tonight. Uh, By the way, this is a good marriage principle here. Even if you think your spouse has no reason to be offended, if they are offended, then it's still something you need to talk about (laughs) and you need to discuss. It's not right to have the attitude of, uh, you know, they just need to grow up and get over it. That's not the right attitude. It's not right for men to launch into long, logical arguments of why her emotions are completely off base. Uh, let's reason about this. You know, how dare you think that? How dare you feel that? You can't do that. It's not right for a woman to say, you know what, you're a big boy. Stop needing your ego to be stroked all the time. Take it. When I, when I say this, you, you, you need to take it. It's not right. That's just not right. Even if you think your spouse has no reason to be offended, if they are offended, then you need to deal with this thing in a loving and respectful way. And also, it's an interesting spiritual analogy here. He's standing there knocking at the door. What does that remind you of? It's a picture of Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Jesus as our heavenly husband, has a desire to have a relationship with you, a close, intimate relationship with you. But you and I have to open the door. He doesn't barge in. He doesn't kick down the door. We have to open the door. Well, what is the wife's response to her husband out in the cold, begging for her to open the door so he can come in? Well, her response is indifference. Or more bluntly, honestly, it's selfishness. And that's what we see next. Number two is selfishness. Look at verse three. Look what she says. She yells from the bed, I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? In other words, I'm in bed already. I've already taken off my clothes. I don't want to get up and get my feet dirty on the ground again. I've washed my feet. I have a headache. (laughs) This is strange because when you read the previous chapter, she's welcoming him in 
with every part of her being. Remember all those chapters before? I mean, she's just, I, I'm open to you, my love. Come into me and, uh, you know, let's have love all night and all of this. And she would have raced to the door. You read those pa- previous verses. She would have raced to the door when he's calling. But the honeymoon is over. And now, for some reason, the, the shop is closed, buddy. Sorry. Again, this is a reminder that that early in that infatuation type love that we have at the beginning, that type love alone is not all that's needed for a good marriage. It's, a, it's good to have, and we need to keep the fires stoked, but, but that's not all that we need. Uh, that idea is only in fairy tales. They lived happily ever after. Um, anyway, what, she doesn't want to get up and let him in. Now, why? We, we don't know. Maybe she's trying to punish him for hurting her. She's laying there hurt because he said he was going to be home at a certain time and he wasn't home. Uh, maybe she had everything set. She had a nice romantic dinner all set out, ready to go because he said, and now everything's put away and she's just angry about it. And by her reaction, I know I'm not even going to open a door for you. Now, what we're starting is we're beginning to what uh, the author of Love and Respect calls the crazy cycle. Now, we've got to be very careful. As soon as you react with disrespect or uh, unlove, this thing could start spinning. Or maybe she's just not feeling like being with him. We don't really know the whole story. In that that case, if I just don't feel like being with you right now, uh, I don't feel like being close to you, so no, I'm not going to unlock the door. Well, that's just plain selfishness not thinking of him, thinking of herself. Whatever the case, her response is not going to make things better. It's only going to stir things up. And this is where his response is incredibly important now. Because now this thing could go either way. There's an offense, there's some selfishness, and now what's next? Uh, Question for you, if you're married. Ever been here with your mate? Yeah. You know, I was thinking about a, a, a little disagreement that uh, my wife and I had one time. We were, I'm not going to tell you all the details, sorry, but uh, yeah, long time ago. <laughs> it's only one in our whole life, but, um, but this particular one, we were on vacation in Hawaii. I mean, it, they call Hawaii paradise. And um, I'm with the woman that I love the most in all of the world. What possible reason could I have to be upset but guess what? I'm a stupid jerk, okay? That's just the plain, honest truth. And enough, it was enough selfishness in me for me to say something I just shouldn't have said. Now, I, get, I conveniently do not remember all the details, but, but, I, but I, I, I clearly remember saying something that just offended her. Uh, thankfully, we worked through it quickly and got things back on track, and I thank the Lord for that. But what, what, I think about it sometimes, what is my problem? What is my problem? Why do I get so selfish at times? And you might be surprised, you know, my mouth gets me in trouble sometimes. But why, why? You know, these are the moments right here in a marriage or in a relationship, these points that are kind of at a, at a turning point, and mature people must lay down their pride and seek resolution at this moment before it grows into something worse. These are crucial moments in our relationship. Thankfully, what we're about to see is a mature couple, and we're going to see a beautiful resolution here. Number three, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see humility. Verse four, my beloved put his hand by the hole or the latch of the door. 
and my bowels were moved for him. So instead of yelling at her from the door, or banging on the door, or kicking down the door, or storming away in a loud huff, or making some rude comment, he just gently puts his hand on the door. Like he wants to come in and talk, but humbly just really doesn't say it much. Now this is relationship gold right here. He didn't fight back. He forced himself to show humility. Proverbs 13 and verse 10 says, only by pride cometh contention. Proverbs 17 and verse 14 says, the beginning of strife is as when one letteth out water. Therefore, leave off contention before it be meddled with. Somebody needs early on in the situation to just turn off the water. Or you're going to open the floodgates and things will be said, feelings will be hurt, and could be much worse. You know, um, getting people back, revenge, saying something, uh, might feel good in the moment, but it always ends badly. Dr. James Dobson tells a story. You might have heard this story before. It's the zipper story. A wife one day was getting ready for work, and she asked her husband, hey, could you, could you help me with the zipper on my dress, please? And so the husband's in a playful mood, and he's goofing around. And so he takes her zipper and zip, 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 zip. He's just messing with her zipper. She's yelling at him, stop, just zip up the dress. Zip, 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 zip. And then he breaks the zipper on her dress. Now she's hopping mad, of course, you would, you would agree. She has to change and do all that. So she's like, I'm not, I, I'm not even going to say a word to him. She doesn't say a word to him the rest of the day. She gets home. And when she gets home, she sees him in the garage, under the car, working on the car. So she sees her opportunity to get him back. She goes down, grabs the zipper on his pants, and zip, 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 zip. And she goes inside. And when she go, walks inside into the kitchen, her husband is standing right there in the kitchen. <laughs> Mortified. She asks him, who, you're supposed to be under the car. Who's under the car? And he said, well, the neighbor's out there changing the muffler for me on the car. <laughs> they go out to the garage, and um, they try to get the neighbor's attention. She's just covering her, her face, and uh, th they can't wake him up. He's unconscious. What had happened was, they found out later, when she started zipping his pants, he sat up so fast that he knocked his head on the thing and knocked himself out. Anyway, the point is here, getting revenge, getting revenge is bad for everyone. It's bad for everybody. Don't get people back. Here's the point. Do whatever it takes. Somebody, somebody, somebody has to be the humble one. Somebody has to be the humble one and turn off the water. Purpose. Purpose in your heart to talk about things in a loving, respectful way. Be the one that out in front says, I'm, you know what, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, let's talk about this. You know, when Solomon softly put his hand by the door, she was instantly struck by her own attitude. And this is what happens in those moments when somebody does the right thing, then the opposite party feels a sense of conviction. And that's what happened. Look at verse five. I rose up to open to my beloved and my hands dropped with myrrh, my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. 
Apparently, when he put his hand on the latch there of the door, he had put some kind of myrrh maybe on the door handle, which is something that they did back then to let someone know that they loved them. They would leave myrrh, sweet-smelling myrrh, on the door. Uh, One scholar said that, quote, he simply left her a love note and then went away. In their culture, a lover would leave his fragrant, uh, this fragrant myrrh at the door as a sign that he had been there. So with this little gesture, he was saying, darling, I still love you and I value you. You know, there's an interesting story about Queen Victoria in England. Not long after they were married, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert had an argument. And afterwards, the prince left the room, stormed out in anger, went to his private quarters and locked the door. Victoria followed him. She knocked loudly on the door, demanding to be let in. And he said, who's there? And, uh, or, and Albert answered, knowing full well that it was his wife. She, you know, she, she said, the Queen of England, and she demands to be let in. Uh, this went on for some time. He didn't open the door, and he would refuse her. At last, finally, Victoria just gave a soft tap, and he said again, who's there? And the queen gently replied, your wife, Albert. The prince then opened the door and let her in. Someone has to humble themselves. Someone has to take the high road. Someone has to be calm and begin the reconciliation with a word or a gesture of love. Like this, like we see in this story. Let it be you. Let it be you. Solomon's gesture leads her to regret and what she's done. And so she opens the door, but... But now, because she's going to open the door here late, it, it leads to a separation. And that's what we see number, next, number four, uh, separation. There's often, this is what happens when we don't respond correctly. Verse six, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved hath withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. So by the, by the time he, she opens the door, he's gone. But now all she wants is to find him and reconnect. Now she'll do anything at this point to reconnect. And so she goes out at night looking for him. Verse 7. The watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. And the keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. So because it appears here, because of the darkness of the night, the watchmen think that maybe she's a woman of the night wearing a veil. And so they take her and they beat her. Now, this makes us think it's probably a dream, but I guess it potentially could be true. I want to point out a spiritual lesson here real quick. D.L. Moody uh, pointed out, and I have it up here if you'd like to read along. He said, after her initial reluctance, she finally responded to her lover's overtures. The delay was costly. Once her interest was aroused and she opened the door to him, he could not be found. His absence sparked her desire and motivated her to seek him with renewed passion. The search, however, was not an easy one. She did not find him immediately, and during her travels, she encountered the city watchmen. They badly mistreated her and stole her cloak, which some scholars suggest was a wedding gift from her groom. The bride's experience is analogous to what happens to human relationships and our relationship with God. In marriage, neglect inevitably leads to a loss of intimacy. If we look for help from the wrong source we may end up bruised by the experience. Likewise, God sometimes uses the bumps and bruises of life to show that only He can provide ultimate comfort. The sufferings we experience drive us closer to Him. A great thought there. But let's move on. After this experience, she meets up 
with her girlfriends. And they sound like the ladies at the hair salon to me, is what we're about to see. Here's her, number five, her counsel. This is, these are the people that, she's, that are talking to her. Verse eight. She, first she says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, then you, that you tell him that I am sick of love. I'm lovesick for him. She wants her friends to help her find him. And she tells them how she aches to be uh, with her beloved after they've fought. Now they speak up to her. Verse nine. What is thy beloved more than any other beloved? O thou fairest among women. What is thy beloved more than another beloved? Thou, that, that thou dost so charge us. So they seem to say, like girlfriends will tell each other, what makes him so special that you can't live without him? How is he unlike any other man? He's just like all those male pigs. He doesn't deserve you, girl. Get someone else is what they were saying. Now, now watch out who you're listening to. Uh, ladies need to watch out who to listen to. Guys need to watch out who you're listening to. Dave Ramsey uh, says, don't get financial advice from a broke person. And that is good marriage principle also, honestly. Don't get marriage advice from someone who doesn't follow the one who created marriage. If you're listening to somebody who doesn't even understand the person who put this whole thing together, you're listening to the wrong person. But the Shulamite has enough sense to ignore them and to not pay attention to what they're saying. And so now what we're going to see, number six here, is selflessness. Selflessness, the secret to marriage. Now if this were a movie, the camera would slowly be moving in for a close-up on her. We're seeing this play out, and the camera is starting to pan right to close to her face. She would have stars in her eyes. They would probably put the little fuzzy lens on there, you know. And, 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 her, and then she'll say, I'll, I'll tell you why he's special to me. You ask what he means to me, I'll tell you. Verse 10 and beyond. My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. First, I want you to notice the words, my beloved. And again, notice the important shift that takes place in her. She's no longer thinking about herself. She's no longer thinking selfishly. No, I ain't coming to the door. I don't care what, if you're out there in the cold night. She's not thinking like that. Now, what we're going to see is she is so focused on him, the one she loves. That's where her mind is. That's where her heart is. She's thinking about all that he means to her. It's selflessness. And this is the key to our marriages. We must constantly remind ourselves of the blessing that our spouse is to us. This person that God has given to us, all the wonderful traits that we see, that we love about them. You keep, we keep reminding that over and over and over again for years to come. And now that she is back to thinking about how much she loves him, she's fallen in love with him in her heart all over again, so she describes what he looks like in her eyes. He's white. Literally, that word white there means dazzling or radiant. He's dazzling. <laughs> the word ruddy is the word for literally red, but most commentators take this simply as the normal complexion of a healthy young man. He's chiefest among 10,000. There's no one like him. Verse 11, his head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. Lucky guy, he still has his bushy Middle Eastern locks on his head. I, I used to hear stuff like that from my wife, but not as much anymore. I don't know what's going on. Anyway, verse 12, his eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of water, washed with milk and fitly set. She thinks about gazing into his gentle but strong and and meaningful eyes. 
Notice how she comments on the whiteness of his eyes. They're like milk. Uh, some have suggested that she might be saying they aren't bloodshot from a life of wild living. Verse 13, his cheeks are a bed of spices and as sweet flowers, his lips are like lilies dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. See, she's thinking right there about kissing him. She's thinking about the precious kisses of her mate. Verse 14, his hands are as gold rings set with beryl. His belly is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. Now this, now this is where we can identify with, uh, with Solomon, some people are saying. He has a big white belly, it sounds like. That's perfect, he has a dad bod. Actually, the word bright here means something fabricated, literally. So he, it's more what it's saying is he's like a beautifully carved ivory statue. Uh, sorry, guys. It's, it's unknown what the sapphires refer to here, but perhaps he's wearing jewelry around his neck. Verse 15, his legs are as pillars of marble set upon sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His legs and his whole appearance, she's talking about here, speak of strength. He's a strong man. Uh, Strong inwardly, strong outwardly. Notice she she calls him gold. Uh, She says his head is gold and his feet are gold. She sees her man as gold from head to toe. He's gold. Verse 16, his mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Altogether lovely, meaning I love every part of him. I'm in love with him. And then she calls him my beloved and my friend. Now Derek Kinlaw adds this, and listen. He says, the Song of Solomon is unabashedly erotic. Yet, it is never satisfied to be content with the physical alone. A normal person finds the erotic ultimately meaningful only if there is trust and commitment. Delight in the other person, in their person, as well as their body. The writer of the song understands this. Our hero is her lover, but he is more. He is her friend. That's what she says here. He is my friend. See, that's what's most meaningful to her. I am deeply in love with not just your body, but the person that you are. And this is the only time we actually see her in the book of Song of Solomon describe his body. Solomon describes her body a few times, but she describes him only right here. Again, her attitude has changed, though, about her husband. When she stopped thinking about herself and started thinking about him and what he means to her, uh, everything changed. And that's what has to change in our hearts. Selfishness and self-centeredness is the surest way to ruin a marriage. It just does. Now the question is then, what if your spouse is the one who's acting selfish and is ignoring you? Then what? Well, that's what we see here. She was doing that at first. And Solomon, what did he do? He left his calling card on the door. A a sweet-smelling myrrh. Now, with this situation, if somebody's coming against you, they're being selfish, you cannot fight fire with fire. That's what we're learning. Never has anyone said, thank you, darling, for screaming and yelling at me and throwing things around the house. You've shown me how selfish I have been. I really appreciate that. Now, if if you sense that your spouse is angry or wants nothing to do with you, then remember this, you can't change your spouse. You can't change them. 
We have to love them out of it. We have to keep focusing on not being self, uh, selfish. We have to focus on being selfless. And that means listening with understanding, answering with compassion, bearing their burden, desiring to see them succeed, praying for them to be blessed, seeing yourself as a servant, sacrificing your time, your energy, and your resources for them, prioritizing them, including them in your decision-making, and overall just treating them with the golden rule, how you would want to be treated. And in short, it's, it's about being, really, if you think about all those things, what we're really saying is if we really just narrow this whole thing down, it's really just being like Jesus, isn't it? It really is. It's having the mind of Christ. Remember what the Bible says, Jesus made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. And that's the kind of mind it, that actually makes for a truly beautiful marriage and the one that works through conflict and resolves things and then there's beautiful restoration. The best marriages are the ones where people are living and loving like Christ. It all goes back to him. He's our example. Now, all this leads to an important part of restoration. This is number seven, pursuit. Her girlfriends are convinced that she loves, they're not convinced that she loves him and they're ready to help her find him. Verses one and two of chapter six. Whither is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? Whither is thy beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with thee? She says, my beloved has gone down into his garden to the beds of spices, to feed in the gardens, and to gather lilies. Now, because of the word garden, this could be a sexual reference, but for several reasons, one really just being the context here, it seems like this is saying he's out working in an actual garden. Uh, And it's not unusual for kings and people to just enjoy being out in the garden working. And the important thing is here, though, that she pursued him. This is an important piece in resolving conflict. We have to seek out each other and talk. We gotta communicate. We can't think, don't leave things unsaid. Uh, Spouses should be able to come together, talk about their hurts, talk about their issues, talk about the things that they're feeling, but always with love and respect. And so that's now what we see is now number eight, communication. Notice how she talks as she's going to meet him. Notice how she's gonna describe her feelings as she's about to, Go find him. Verse three, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He feedeth among the lilies. See, she approaches him with this attitude of no matter what, we belong to one another. No matter what, no matter what we're gonna talk about here, no matter how, whatever we have to discuss, we need one thing set at the foundation of this discussion and that is I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. That doesn't change. And what a perfect attitude when you're about to communicate about a conflict or have a discussion about something. We always start with love and positivity. Always with love and respect for each other. According to a marriage study, an argument between a husband and wife never rises above the level of the first three minutes. In other words, if you start the first three minutes with just love, it will remain at that level. But if you come in guns blazing, and screaming and hollering and just wanting your way, then things are just gonna continue that way. It's in the first three minutes. The other, the other thing we need to do in a conflict resolution is what Jimmy Evans calls 
Complain, but don't criticize. Complain, but don't criticize. This is a good thought. Complaining, what do you mean by that is, saying something like, listen, I know feelings lie sometimes, but I felt this way when you did this. And it's just about how I'm feeling. I'm sure you didn't mean it, but this is how I feel. Criticizing is putting it on them. You always do this. This is what you do, and you know what you're doing. And those kind of comments and criticizing and attacking like that is gonna bring things down. We come into resolution with this mindset. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. We're together. We love each other. I just wanna talk about this and forgive quickly. Well, we don't hear their makeup conversation. We don't hear their communication, but it's obvious they make up because look at how he begins to speak to her now and what I'm gonna call assurance. Number nine, assurance. Look at what he says. Thou art beautiful, my love, O my love. As Terza, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. <laughs> he compares her beauty to two of the most beautiful, important cities in all of the Israelite kingdom, Jerusalem and Terza. The beauty of Jerusalem was legendary. In fact, in scripture, it's, uh, Jerusalem is twice called the perfection of beauty. Terza was, was beautiful as well. The name Terza means pleasure or beauty. So beautiful actually was Terza that it was chosen by Jeroboam, Solomon's son, to be, uh, or Jal- uh, one who followed Solomon, to be the original cap- uh, capital of the northern kingdom. He lo- loved that city. It's a beautiful city. You're as beautiful as Jerusalem and Terza to me. And that is as terrible or as awesome is what that means, as awesome as an army with banners. So looking at his bride was like just looking at this massive army with banners waving in full array and glory and shiny and gorgeous. And the word here, really, what he's combining is a mixture of awe and respect. I have, I have awe for you. I have respect for you. Um, one scholar adds that Solomon, quote, did not fall prey to the destructiveness of wounded pride. He did not act in a petty revenge. He did not determine to get back at his wife. He thought only of assuring her with his forgiveness. And then verse five, turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Gilead. So now, just like they did in their young years, his eyes, he says, your eyes are just captivating me. Don't look at me, your eyes are just getting me. They, you, you're striking me. And, and then he then describes her with the exact words now that he used on their wedding night. It's almost like he's saying, darling, my love for you has never changed. I love you today just like I did years ago on our wedding night. Look at verse six and seven. Thy teeth are as a flock of sheep which go up from the washing, whereof every one beareth twins. There is not one barren among them. As a piece of of pomegranate are thy temples within thy locks. We talked about those last week. You know, sometimes you need to go back in your mind and just remember why you were married in the first place, why you were drawn to this person, what, what, what attracted you. Couples must rekindle their love again and again and again over the years. That's what we do as married couples. Now, I'm gonna go into the ending and the kind of the, uh, the conclusion of this, but I have to tell you that the rest of this chapter is very difficult to interpret. Um, I've done lots of study, I've, and I've noticed that 
it's not just me. In fact, you, you, you can pull a bunch of different um, commentators here, really about the whole book of Song of Solomon, and you get a wide array of views here, especially in this area. But let me, let me, let me do my best. Verses 8 and 9 now. He says, There are threescore queens and fourscore concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my undefiled, is but one. She is the only one of her mother. She is the choice one of her that bear her. The daughters saw her and blessed her, yea, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. So what he's saying is, this you, my darling, are better than 60 queens, 80 concubines and virgins or young maidens without number. In other words, no one compares to you in my mind. And then he, and he says, you are my undefiled, he said, my undefiled is one. It's like he's saying, you are one in a billion. There's no one like you. <clears throat> and everybody in the world knows it. Everybody in, our, everybody in our nation knows it. Her mother and all the other women in the kingdom very much know you're very special to me. And obviously that's something every wife needs to know and to be reassured constantly my husband thinks about me and he places me and he doesn't, he doesn't uh, th- think of me as another woman. No, I am far above every woman. But now as we read this, it does bring up a question in our minds. We know it's Solomon speaking and <clears throat> when he talks about wives and concubines, is he talking about his own here? Perhaps. Here are some reasons though he may not be referring to his own wives and concubines. Number one is he doesn't say my queens and concubines. He just says there are. And number two is, and the reference to the virgins there at the end is kind of out of place with that, that thought. And number three is that there's a possibility he's just speaking in a figurative sense and throwing out numbers here. Notice the progression in numbers. He says 60 wives and 80 concubines and then virgins without number. It's like he's just speaking figuratively. No matter how many women are out there, Uh, you're far above all of them. But if he is referring to his harem, which we know he had later in life, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, (coughs) maybe the Shulamite was his first and real love. And time has now passed where Solomon has disobeyed God and multiplied wives. God specifically told kings, do not multiply wives unto yourself. And Solomon went the opposite direction. In that case, then what he's saying here is that you are better to me than all of them put together. He's he's trying to say my my love for you was the real thing. All of this other stuff is not as real as what we have. And everyone knows it. Now again, let me just say, I've, I've already mentioned this, but we do know because he had all those wives and concubines, the Bible does say that Solomon's heart was stolen away by those women and his heart turned to idols. Now this reminds us that just because something is recorded in scripture, it doesn't mean it is approved by God. The ultimate lesson really though, if you think about Solomon and having all of these wives is this. Uh, Really, if you stop and think about what's the lesson we learn in that, here it is. If one woman is not enough for you, then a thousand will not be enough. Married couples, listen, do not let anything or anyone steal your heart away from God or your mate. We're meant to be focused. God started this at the very beginning, Adam and Eve. And he said, you are to be focused on one person. That is the person you are married to. You put all your focus on them and your your spouse and your spouse alone. 
That is your duty. That is what God has called us to do. The two become one. And as we conclude, after they talk and profess their love for one another, there's just so much joy and excitement again in their relationship. Uh, Number 10, we're going to see intensity. Again, these verses are very difficult to interpret, but you can see the passion and excitement as they return to the relationship. I think this is him speaking, and he starts by praising her. Verse 10. Who is she that looketh forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners? So he can't find enough words to describe how wonderful she is to him. She's like the sunrise, as beautiful as the moon, glowing like the sun. I think it's still him speaking here. Verse 11, I went down into the garden of nuts (laughs) to see the fruits of the valley. The valley of fruits and nuts. He came to California, look at that, and to see whether the vine flourished and the pomegranates budded. Now this is all a reference to springtime. And he says, he seems to have wanted to find out, has spring come again in our relationship? And it's almost as if he's asking, is everything better now? Is everything better now after our issue that we had? Or is it springtime again? Verse 12, wherever I was aware, my soul made me like the chariots of Aminadab. So as soon as they came together, it's obvious that everything is good now. It's like his soul just takes off in a chariot flying down the road. It was like a rush of excitement. They were back together. Love is restored. Now let me just remind everybody There is a good principle here that don't ever think that problems in your past means that you can't again have an exhilarating love relationship again. It can make you feel like you're taken off in chariots. God can restore the springtime of troubled winter relationships. And lastly, verse 13, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon thee. What What will ye see in the Shulamite? As it were, the company of two armies. So perhaps all her friends are seeing her get swept away by him and they want to reconnect with her and maybe they want to celebrate with her. And it's almost as if she bashfully, that's why they say, return, 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 come back, come back. But she is saying, what do you see in the Shulamite? What do you want, what do you see in me? Why am I so special? And in Hebrew, the reference to a company of two armies could be referring to a special kind of dance called the Dance of the Mahanaim which was a special dance that perhaps a wife would do uh, in private with her husband. So it might be something like, why should I come back, she's saying, and dance with you when I have to go dance for my husband. Ultimately, this is a story about, when you look at the whole thing, it really is just a story about restoration, about reconciliation, and that's something that has to happen again and again and again in, our, in the lifetime of our marriage. The best, two ma- the best marriages, I heard somebody say, are those with two forgivers. The best marriages are those with two forgivers. You gotta be a forgiver. And that was Paul and Billy Kasika that said that. I remember them saying that, and they have their book, I think we sell it out here, uh, Get Married, Stay Married. Interesting story, he was a traveling preacher and he sinned greatly one time when he went into a city and he was away from his wife and he had an affair. God told him, but God got a hold of his heart, he confessed, And his whole story is there and how they went through that, their journey. And she had to learn how to forgive. Very difficult thing. But now for many years, they have helped thousands of people learn to reconcile and forgive and forgive and keep on forgiving. And if everybody, if she could forgive, we can forgive. And we can work, keep working at restoration, both of us. Just keep working, keep working, keep working. This is the only way to do this marriage thing, two forgivers. Lord, we love you. We We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. 
you can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.